Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, everyone, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in and welcome to our session, a conversation with Senator Rand Paul on safeguarding our elections. Uh, Senator Paul uh, really doesn't need an introduction. Uh, as you all know, he was elected in 2010 uh, from the Commonwealth of Kentucky as the U.S. Senator. Uh, before that, he was a well-known and well-respected uh, eye surgeon. And since his arrival in the U.S. Senate, he has been a champion and an advocate for protecting our constitutional liberties and the protections in our Bill of Rights, as well as uh, pushing for fiscal responsibility, and uh, I think he must be one of the one of the busiest, most productive members of the U.S. Senate because in his spare time he still is performing pro bono eye surgery for uh, the residents of Kentucky. So, Senator Paul, uh, if you will turn on your turn on your camera, uh, it, over over to you for uh, for your presentation on uh, election integrity. Thanks, Hans. You know, um, ever since the election, it's been a bone of contention. You know, how fair was the election? How honest was it? I think there's not many people left in America who don't have an opinion on it. But the one thing that I think is uh, untrue is that the courts fully heard this or that the courts have made a decision that there were was nothing awry or nothing amiss. The truth of the matter is the court largely didn't hear the question of election integrity. They chose not to hear these, so they dismissed most of the cases based on standing. And this is uh, not a new tradition. Courts have been hesitant to get involved in elections really since the beginning of time. And the beginning of my political history, at least knowing anything about this, goes all the way back to 1976, when my dad lost an election by 200 votes out of 200,000. We contested the election. We found dead people voted. We found 13 people who voted out of one household and we couldn't find anyone who had ever answered the door of that house. We found vacant lots, we found commercial lots. We found precincts, and this is in 1976, where the entire precinct was 100% for the opponent, zero for us, and the handwriting at first appearance appeared to be the same person signed everybody in and they had 100% turnout. So anomalies like that are not brand new, but no court would hear my father's case. It finally was sort of heard of the Texas Supreme Court, then dismissed, and actually went to the House of Representatives, similar to this case in Iowa, where the, the ophthalmologist up there won by six votes, and there was the threat of someone not being seated. But the bottom line is the courts don't like to hear these things, but it isn't a valid argument to say that because courts don't like to hear election issues, that there weren't any problems. The obvious things I think we can all agree on that shouldn't happen. Dead people shouldn't vote. People shouldn't vote twice. People shouldn't vote from you know, post office boxes and commercial property. That stuff, really, everybody ought to be able to agree on. And I think it's important, though, that we try to figure out a way to make that happen. In our elections, I think what is not contested about the last election anyway is that it was an extraordinary election. We've never, ever, and I mean ever, had an election with so many mail-in ballots. So traditionally, well over 90% of people would show up in most states and vote in person, and most of them would show up in show identification. 
the fact that it was through the mail did change the complexion of the uh, of the um, election in the sense that for the first time we had millions and millions of people voting by mail and there wasn't an ID component to this. On top of that, the real constitutional question that I think is probably at the heart of most of my grievance towards the election is whether or not officials can change election law without the permission of the state legislature. This is akin to the argument we have in Washington where we have presidents all the time making executive orders without the permission of Congress. I think our founding fathers never intended that. And I think the founding fathers of the states never intended that. So we did have a couple of important uh, court cases leading up to the election in Pennsylvania. And then I think we had another one in Michigan. And the court cases revolved around whether or not the secretary of state can create new election law without the permission of the legislature. Now this is pretty important because if we allow governors or secretary of state to create law without the permission of the, the, the state legislatures, we're getting rid of the checks and balances and the division of power that our founders thought so important. But here's the, the, the problem. The courts did rule in a couple of these cases and the federal judges basically ruled that if the law does not tell you you cannot do something, that you may do it. And this is sort of the law upside down because most conservatives look at the law and we say, the Senate can only do and Congress can only do what the Constitution allows us to do. It isn't sort of like, if they didn't tell me I couldn't, could not do something that I'm allowed to. In fact, our Ninth and Tenth Amendment are sort of the opposite thrust. They are, if those powers are not explicitly given to Congress, those powers are left to the states and the people. So it's sort of an upside down notion to believe that a secretary of state can mail ballots to people or mail applications of ballots to people without the permission of the state legislature, simply because they did not tell that secretary of state not to do it. They just never gave the secretary of state that power. So part of the reforms as we go forward have to acknowledge this upside down legal world we live in now. And I've actually advised states when they're doing their state election reform laws, that you actually need to explicitly say to secretaries of state and to governors, you can't mail applications to ballot or you can't mail uh, ballots to people. If it's not expressly given, they need to expressly deny that power. Now, one of the ways to do this is to individualize the process. Not only it should be one person, one vote, it should be one person, one ballot. You shouldn't be allowed to have people printing out hundreds of ballots for each person or thousands of ballots or thousands of applications for ballots for one person. There should be one application for each voter and it should be assigned to them. If that voter wants a ballot, there should be valid ways their family can help them if they're elderly or if they're infirm to get their ballot. But what we shouldn't allow is organizations, whether they be the state or whether they be moveon.org or frankly, whether they be the NRA, from right or left, we should not have harvesting ballot applications sent to millions of people and then resent and resent. And you shouldn't allow somebody to go door to door, collect 10,000 ballots and then stuff them in a drop box. It should be one person, one vote at a time. It shouldn't be voting by the tens of thousands, shouldn't be solicited or harvested. And that's what's important about election reform. Now, I didn't actually side with Donald Trump after the election. I do think that the electoral college system we have says that states certify elections. I didn't like the outcome, and I did think there were irregularities is a nice way to put it, 
But I also felt like if the Secretary of State and or the legislature or whoever confirmed a governor, actually in many cases, certified voters and sent them to me, I really don't think that it's a good or a wise system to have Congress vote to overturn certified electors. Now, Congress was given a role in the 1887 law, but I believe that role was given when states send more than one set of electors. And there's a controversy over which ones are the official electors. I think there is a role for Congress. The problem with having Congress overturn various state legislatures or states that certify electors is that you'd wind up with the mess of any time that Congress was different than the popular vote of the danger of Congress actually overturning the vote. So um, while I didn't uh, think that that battle was one worth fighting, I did immediately after the election think that something was awry, something was wrong and something needed to be fixed, but that it was at the state legislative level and that the primary culprit, bigger than dead people voting, bigger than people voting twice, which I think did happen, is the idea of uh, so many people voting by mail and the inherently less um, capable system of verifying votes when they're done by mail. And so I've been working ever since the election. I've talked to ALEC, which is the conservative state legislators. I've talked to legislators in uh, dozens of states, encourage them, including my state of Kentucky, to pass election reform law. One additional item that we added into ours, we individualized the absentee ballot. We defined it. We encouraged in-person voting. And we also did expand the vote in the sense that we allowed more days of early voting, same as Georgia did. And so for the Democrats to stand up and call Jim Crow should be called out on the face of it as ridiculous. And we should throw it right back in their face and remind them that not only is this not Jim Crow, the Democrat party is the party of Jim Crow. You have to look long and hard in history to find a Republican that voted for a Jim Crow law. In my state, when they had passed Jim Crow laws at the turn of the last century, 1900, 1905, these despicable laws were passed entirely by Democrats. Every Republican voted no. Unfortunately, we only had a handful of Republicans in Kentucky at the time. And we also had every African-American in our state was a Republican opposed to Jim Crow laws. So I think it's insulting that they can try to get away with calling any of this Jim Crow because we have more people voting now, more access to voting than at any time in our history. Our vote was the largest vote we've ever had. They said back to 1900, but I really think it probably was the largest, most inclusive vote. There's no evidence that African-American vote is declining or that anything done in any of these bills restricts their voting. And frankly, I find it insulting to anyone who is African-American to say, oh, somehow they are incapable of getting a driver's license. There are very few people in our country without driver's license. And I, I think that it's insulting to any race to sort of say, oh, you guys are not capable of getting a driver's license. So I've been in favor of these election uh, reforms at the state level. I want elections to remain at the state level. There are some now promoting, you know, this House Bill 1, which is Nancy Pelosi's bill to federalize elections. I'm absolutely opposed to that. But I can tell you I'm not that excited about the conservative proposals to also federalize elections and then tell states what to do. I think the battle should be enjoined at the state level, not the federal level at all. We should fight it state by state. We're not going to win any federalization election issue anyway. If anything becomes federalized by Congress or anything passes, it will be a terrible bill because there will be a bill passed by a Democrat Senate, a Democrat House, and a Democrat president signing it. So I think we should be very, very reticent to offer 
any kind of conservative federalization of elections. And we should try to fight the battle where we have a chance of winning and where really where our founding fathers intended it to be, and that's at the state level. But uh, I would say to anybody listening to this call, do not back down, fight for election uh, integrity, and let's don't give up on this issue because it does make a difference where we go in the country. Thanks, Hans. And I don't know if we're set for questions or how are you set to do this? Well, I, I got a couple of questions for you, if I sure. may, although I have to tell you, your, your presentation was so complete uh, that uh, some of the questions I had for you, I'm just going to throw out. But I, I have to say, I, I didn't know that story about your father, which I, I find that very interesting because I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize, but Jimmy Carter, the first time he ran for the state legislature in Georgia, had exactly the same problem. He had to go to court because the local political machine had basically stolen his election, which I think is one of the reasons that he's been, uh, I think, a bit more concerned about this than some folks on the other side of the, of the political aisle. Um, you know, you talked about HR1, uh, which is past the House, uh, currently in the Senate. I, I talked to a lot of state and, and local election officials all over the country, and just like the public, they are extremely, concerned about this bill, and that's on a bipartisan basis. I mean, local county election officials, whether they're Republican or Democrats, do not like this bill, not only because it's it's a federal takeover of, of what they do, but it has all these really terrible mandates in it. I guess my, my question to you is, is, what do you think the prospects are for this bill in, in the Senate? It did pass the House on a party line vote with only one Democrat, uh, Representative Benny Thompson from Mississippi, voting against it, saying that his constituents didn't like, you know, provisions in the bill. But what do you think is the prospect for this in the Senate? I don't think any Republicans will vote for it. So I think it would be a 50-50 vote. And unless they overturn the filibuster, I think we can defeat it. But I, I, that battle is not completely over. We have two Democrats saying they'll uphold the filibuster. I hope they remain there. Um, but I think they still need encouragement. So if you're in the state, so West Virginia or Arizona, I would encourage Senator Cinema and encourage Senators uh, Manchin to uh, stick by it, protect it. I think also, if you want to convince your friends of how bad of an idea is, tell your friends, whether they're conservative or liberal, that see these the, the uh, unholy litany of political ads that are just, you know, disgusting beyond belief and fill the airways with nonsense. They go on and on to the tune of a million dollars. Do you want to pay for those? because that's basically what this will be is so many people get sick and tired of political ads and they can't turn their TV channel fast enough. Well, guess what? This bill would require the taxpayer to pay for political ads. So uh, I think that ought to be enough to unite Republicans and Democrats that it's a terrible idea to force you to pay for ads because frankly, um, at least a reasonable amount of time, none of the above is the best choice in the election. And so I don't want my money going to either party about half the time. Well, in fact, uh, I think Representative Thompson cited that specific provision that his constituents did not like the idea that uh, their tax monies would be going for subsidizing candidates, particularly of folks who they would never vote for in a million years. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the Georgia election reform bill and, and frankly, the complete and total uh, lies that were told about what it was doing. I, my question to you is, I, I was wondering whether uh, that was a deliberate policy in order to try to undergird support for the passage of H.R. 1 in the Senate. It, it, I'm wondering whether the people that were doing that 
we're, we're trying to use that to say, oh, see what the states are doing, like in Georgia, is so bad. That's why we need HR1. And I wonder whether that was a deliberate policy rather than just mistakes by people not bothering to actually read what was in the bill. I think there's some possible truth to that. That's the rumor that's circulating in Washington saying that basically they threw this up there and now because of what's going on there, they're saying we need the national bill. But this bill nationally has been up for, for several years. I mean, it was a House Bill 1, I think, two years ago, too. So they've been floating this because the Democrats really, to tell you the truth, don't care about anyone's right to vote. They care only about power. So they're trying to get more voters out in an easier fashion where there's not much effort to vote. And I think they feel that they can get more low information voters to turn out. That's all this is, is it's about power politics. It isn't really about the right to vote. No one's suppressing anybody's right to vote. Look, and the thing is, is when the Democrats say that, they are insulting the pioneers of civil rights who did fight for the right to vote. They're insulting the, you know, John Lewis and those who stood on the bridge in Selma and were beaten by Democrats, we might remind you. Every cop and sheriff and horrible bigot on the bridge at Selma was the Democrat, all right? It's a disservice to the people who stood up to vote and not to be beaten at the polls to say we have, you know, voting suppression now. African-Americans vote at a higher percentage than they ever have in our history. They actually equal or exceed the percentage of whites voting in states with large black populations. In fact, when the Supreme Court said that we no longer needed the federal government to intervene in voting rights, they quoted those exact statistics that African-Americans in Mississippi were voting at a higher rate than white Americans in Mississippi. So, you know, it, this is a Trump, uh, it's a ploy, it's a deception, and it's all intended to make it easier for Democrats to win an election. Has nothing to do with voter suppression or nothing to do with voting rights, and they should be called out on it. And the other people that should be called out on it are these corporations. People all need to get their Coca-Cola and dump it on the ground, stomp on the can and say, look, if you guys aren't even going to read the bill and you don't want Republicans to, to drink Coca-Cola, so be it. If Major League Baseball does not want Republicans to buy their $150 tickets to go to the game, let's have it. Let them have it, you know, because they need to understand that, you know, they may not like Republicans, all these woke corporate folks, but guess what? We're half the public. We have half the spending power. And if they don't want Republicans to buy their tickets, so be it but they should be made to pay an economic price for what they're doing. Um, you know, what's, one of the things that's interesting about this, and you've talked about this a little bit, is the, the bipartisan divide on this, particularly in Washington these days, because it used to not be that way. You know, in 2002, Congress, I think it was, it was the last time Congress really passed a, an election reform bill, the Help America Vote Act, it was bipartisan. I think in the Senate, it, 92 senators voted for it. Um, and in 2005, uh, as you know, Jimmy Carter and James Baker released their report, again, a bipartisan commission that made all kinds of recommendations, including requiring an ID uh, when people uh, vote. I, since then, that, that bipartisanship had just completely disappeared. I guess my question to you is, do you think that is now an unbridgeable divide? Is, is it ever going to be, are we ever going to be, get, get, be able to get back to the point where there's bipartisan agreement on wanting both access and security? Because right now, that, that just seems to have completely disappeared. 
Well, you know, we have to have a, an honest debate with honest facts. If you're not going to have honest facts, it's kind of hard to have the debate. So if they're saying that the Georgia law is Jim Crow and you're calling us a racist and saying we want voter suppression, how do you even begin a conversation with people like that? Because it's lies, 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 but it's also an insult. Look, I don't have a racist bone in my body. I want everybody to be treated equally regardless of the color of their skin, their creed, you name it. The law should be blind to all sort of individualized sort of notions. It should treat everybody absolutely equal. And I'm absolutely there. And so I'm not going to be insulted by these people. And how do I have a conversation with people calling me a racist? How do you have a conversation with people? So I think we throw it right back at him and said, look, you guys are the party of segregation. You're the party of Jim Crow. And how dare you? But you got to have the same set of facts. Look, on, on taxes, they say the rich aren't paying their fair share. Well, the rich pay all of the income tax in our country. So you, it's hard to have a conversation with people. They say cutting taxes led to the deficit. Actually, revenue increased when you cut taxes. How do you have arguments with people that are unwilling to acknowledge the facts? So I used to say we were less polarized up here than the media depicted. Now I think we're as much or more polarized than the media depicts because it has gotten worse. Everything's gotten worse, but it's the internet and this woke culture. Look, I think there's less racism in America than there's ever been in our history of our time. There's never been a time that if you were born of a minority of any sort, of any classification, that there's been less bigotry and less racism in our country. There is, no, there is no discrimination in the workplace for publicly traded companies. There is none for med school. There is none for law school, for dental school, for college, um, for nursing school, you name it. All of those things that once existed in our country are gone, and we should celebrate that. If you look at marriage, we have lots and lots of intermarriage between races now. We have churches that are integrated, all voluntarily integrated. We, Everything about the, the trajectory of our country has been towards a better time and away from some of the bad things that did happen once upon a time. And yet all you hear from people is that they want us all to hate each other and they, they think that everything's based on hate. And if you talk to people, that nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, it's not just that that kind of discrimination is, is illegal, but uh, our society, uh, overwhelmingly agrees that it's morally reprehensible. And that's, I think, true more today than ever in, in our uh, entire history. Um, if I could ask you one, one question about one very specific part of, of HR1 that I was just astonished to see, and I, I can't believe more attention hasn't been paid to it. And that is, you know, this requires states to set up um, redistricting commissions in every state, basically taking that power away from uh, let state legislatures, but I I was shocked uh, looking at it when I saw that the membership of those commissions, this law would uh, this bill would impose racial and gender quotas on the members of those commissions. Not only that, but uh, it it imposes what what looks like a religious test because in order to even apply to be a member of these commissions, you have to reveal not only your religious affiliation. But your membership in private um, private groups, like you know, if you're a member of the NAACP or the NRA or NARAL, or it doesn't matter whether it, which organizations on the left or right, and again, I'm I'm just astonished that the sponsors of this bill would not realize how fundamentally 
unconstitutional that is. I mean, do they just not understand that or do they just have such a contempt for the Constitution uh, that, that they just don't care about it? Well, it's a topsy-turvy world. I mean, Martin Luther King wouldn't know what to do in this world. I mean, Martin Luther King would be hounded out of the woke society because he didn't believe you should be judged by the color of your skin, but by your character, which is a noble statement, still rings true for most of us. But the woke generation wants people to be judged based on the color of their skin, particularly white people. They want white people to be accused and they want white people to be maligned and they want white people to apologize for being white. Look, Coca-Cola is having their employees stand up and read some sort of Mao-like statement apologizing for being white in the workplace. This is a culture, they want a culture based on race. They are, what they are promoting, you know, really would offend Martin Luther King. And somebody's got to say it, and we've got to keep, keep it up because really we're going to live in a world where everything becomes about race. Instead of becoming in a less race conscious world, which I think our kids have grown up in, we're going to become a world consumed by race. And I think that's a, a terrible tragedy for a world that's really becoming, a, has been becoming a better place for decades. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, Senator Paul. I, I'm going to give you the, the last word. Um, and I just want to say the polling shows that the American people actually share your concerns. I mean, the polling shows that Americans have lost a great deal of confidence in the fairness and security of the election process. And I, I guess I wonder what you would say to them about what you think they themselves uh, ought to be doing to try to help uh, remedy this problem? I tell everybody, don't give up. 2022 is around the corner. Elections come and go very quickly in our country. And for every bad election, there's usually the pendulum swings back the other way. I think we have a better than 50-50 chance of taking the U.S. House back. Because of population migration, people are migrating to Republican states where the redistricting will be done largely by Republicans. And I think there's, you know, without question, we're going to pick up seats just simply from redistricting. I think the Senate's 50-50. I think also that election reform, if that's what you're particularly interested in and you're worried about elections, realize this. Our founding fathers wanted elections to be administered by the states. This is what's in the Constitution. It's supposed to be primarily, if not entirely, a function of the states. This is your opportunity to get involved. Call your state rep, find out who he is or she is. Find out who your state senator is, call them. Sometimes um, there's not such a layer in between you and them. You might be able to see them, you might be able to go over to their house, you might be able to just call their house, a state rep or a state senator, and let them know you want election integrity, and then you can feel more certain that your vote will count and that it's gonna be an honest election if they will pass election integrity reform. We've passed it in Kentucky now, Georgia, Iowa, and probably a handful of other states. But I think every state where conservatives are in the majority, where Republicans control the legislature and or the governorship, we should pass election reform. And this is something we can't do in every state, but in about 30, 35 states, we have the ability to try to put election reform forward. And it means call your state reps, find out who they are, and talk to them about what you want. Well, Senator Paul, thank you so much for having joined us today. This is a very, very important conversation. In fact, I, I got a phone call from a member of the public today telling me that he thought this ought to be the number one priority, election integrity of every state legislator ac across the country. So he clearly agreed with what 
with what you're saying. So thank you very much for uh, being with us today. And uh, uh, we appreciate the work that you've been doing in Washington to protect our constitutional rights and your work on this issue too. Thank you very much. Thanks, Hans. Bye-bye.